So go ahead and flip to Romans 1, and we're going to look today just at the first seven verses there, Romans 1, 1 through 7. Um, we're calling this series Unashamed of the Gospel, and so there's a lot to consider as the Apostle Paul spells out a whole lot of things, but today we're just going to start, and, and I'm gonna, we're going to take our time with it, by the way, because I do want to potentially break midway for a different type of series um, but I, I don't have the foresight to see when that's going to be. So you'll just have to be in suspense, I guess. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7, the King Jesus Gospel. Let's read the text and then pray. Paul, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for gathering your people here today, and in our gratitude, we glorify you for such a remarkable grace. We look at our lives, we look around us, and we are thankful for the work you are doing among us. Father, our nation is in distress and has taken the blessings that come from you and instead trampled them into various quandaries. We are a confused, disheveled nation, and so we look to your word this day to see what we ought to do about it. Spirit of holiness, would you help us? It's in the name of Christ, I pray, amen. So as I mentioned earlier, I've wanted to work through the book of Romans for several years, but circumstances change, uh, seasons come and go, and it never quite worked out for me to get to the book due to other priorities, um, which is all to say, here we are, and I'm very excited to walk through Romans as we grasp what it means to be unashamed of the gospel, the King Jesus gospel. Romans is considered to be by almost everyone Paul's most theologically dense book, and I think for good reason. The reformers like Luther and Calvin, uh, to name only two, uh, spent a lot of time in Romans because much of their rejection of Roman Catholic teaching had to do with the doctrine of justification by faith. And between Romans and Galatians, they had plenty of material to work with. While Romans is deep in terms of the concept of justification by faith, uh, it doesn't have much to say about many other things. Um, Paul doesn't cover the Lord's Supper, and he doesn't really say a whole lot about the doctrine of the church. So you'll have to head over to the letter to the Corinthians to get a better handle on those things. Speaking of Corinth, there is good reason to assume, just to give you some background here, there's good reason to assume that Paul wrote this letter on his third and last missionary journey from Sancria, uh, which is actually the eastern seaport to the city of Corinth, and um, I just decided to look this up. I don't know why I did, but less than 300 people live there today, just to give you an idea. So Paul had spent three years in the city of Corinth working with the church there, and no doubt he had plenty of time as a missionary 
to stop and pause and master, I should say further master, the content and the delivery of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So at the end of the book, we learn, uh, for example, and, and you should kind of look at the end sometimes first, but we learn at the end of the book in um, chapter 16, verse 22, that it was Tertius who was the one that had actually written the letter that Paul was dictating to him. Uh, we don't know entirely, but we think Paul probably struggled with eyesight issues. Um, would, is that what he means by his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians um, most scholars are divided, but uh, I shouldn't say most are divided. That wouldn't make sense. Many scholars are desired, uh, divided, but it seems like most of them would believe that Paul had an eyesight issue. So Paul's there. He's for, there for three years. He, he's, he dictates this letter to Tertius. Tertius um, is writing it down. He even mentions his name. I, Tertius, greet you, who's writing this letter. So we know that he was involved in it. And then we also know that the letter was probably just given to Phoebe, who is called a servant or a deacon, which is what the same word we use for deacon in Romans 16.1. So Phoebe would have taken this letter and traveled with the letter well over 600 miles just to give it and deliver it to the church in Rome. So as far as historical circumstances are concerned, um, the church in Rome developed probably shortly after Pentecost, and no doubt Jews and Gentiles were there learning about the King Jesus gospel in Jerusalem from the preaching of Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, and they probably carried that back with them to, to Rome. Um, Priscilla and Aquila they were part of the early Roman church, and no doubt they were key influential leaders there. Um, and it's interesting, well, well, we'll get to that in a second, but it's interesting too, and it's worth mentioning, as it does help us date the book, that historically, and these are both in um, biblical, uh, um, Philo actually speaks of this, but the emperor Claudius ordered um, Rome's substantial Jewish population to leave Rome in the late 40s. So that was just a couple decades after Christ's death and resurrection. Um, and this was because Jesus was being preached and obviously they had had it up to here with that sort of behavior. <laughs> so Claudius's famous edict sent all the Jews away. They had to leave to leave Rome. So Paul probably met Priscilla and Aquila um, because of this edict. Now, Claudius, the emperor Claudius, died in 54 AD, and Nero, yes, that guy, he rescinded the ban, he took over, and he, of course, made way for Jews to return back to Rome. So, compared with other books, Romans is actually fairly easy to date, and we assume uh, with good reason that Paul probably wrote this letter in, from Corinth to the church in Rome, shortly after Nero himself took to the throne to become emperor, Rome's next emperor. So he probably wrote it in like 56, 57 AD. That's a pretty conservative uh, estimation. So the point, though, of Romans is twofold. One, Paul desires to help the Jewish and Gentile believers function properly in this newfound community. Uh, the, the, the Jewish code of holiness and dietary laws and all these things that marked them out 
would have been a problem for Gentiles because they, here they are coming from pagan backgrounds and they don't have those same things. And so there's obviously kind of a kerfuffle that's about to happen or would have already been happening. So Paul's clearly addressing those issues in his letter to this church. And the second reason is, is kind of funny because we don't think of it like this because Rome is so theologically, Romans is so dense theologically speaking. He's raising money. Romans is a fundraising letter. He's raising money for the church back in Jerusalem, and he's asking people to donate to the cause. The church in Jerusalem, we know, suffered major persecution. In fact, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, there was a lot of tension. You had the Roman-Jewish Wars, which kicked off, I believe it was spring of 66 AD. So there was a lot of tension, and Paul's just trying to strengthen them. So he writes, he writes the letter. And the letter is, you know, way longer than your average first century letter. So just to kind of give you a bird's eye view real quick of the book of Romans, you can break it up into four sections, really. The first section is just chapters one through four. Chapters one through four speak of the gospel um, being Jesus the Messiah who, who comes to bring the covenants of God to their right position in the world. And, and this covenant started with Abraham and it has worldwide significance. That's what Paul says in the first four chapters. The second section is just chapters 5 through 8, where Paul demonstrates how the gospel deals with Adam's sin and how that unfolds into the redemption of the world. Romans 8 is a huge passage about the worldwide significance of the gospel. The third section is just chapters 9 through 11, which gets really dense at some places, especially chapters 9, well, all of them really, but especially chapter 9. And, and in there, Paul simply explains the obvious cultural issues with bringing Jews and Gentiles together into this new covenant, and he discusses covenant theology, which is a great text for learning about that. And lastly, at the end of the book, chapters 12 through 16, basically sorts out all of the practical applications of all the theology that Paul just dumps on them and how that's going to work out in their newfound community. So you, you have a lot of practical exhortations. Um, you have Romans 13, which is largely misunderstood by Christians today, uh, which is not describing Nero's behavior, um, but describing a, a, actually prescribing what the civil magistrate ought to be doing, which is not what Nero was doing, of course. So let's summarize. You can look at your Bible, and I'm just going to kind of walk through verse by verse and just give you kind of a summary, and then we'll pull out some application as we go. So in verse 1, we learn that Paul, who was, he, he was the Saul of the book of Acts until Jesus converted, called, and commissioned him. Paul is the author of the letter, and he is a servant. Um, I have the modern English version, which is based off the King James Version, which I'm growing to love. By the way, Jordan, I really like the text. Um, and I think the NASB says bondservant. But honestly, literally, the, the Greek word just simply means slave. That's what he's saying. He is a slave. More, more precisely, Paul is saying that he is a slave of King Jesus. Now, slaves, uh, in terms of Roman culture, they had no standing whatsoever. All right? No standing whatsoever. And here Paul emphasizes that this is him. Apart from Christ, he's nothing. That's, that's the thing you have to realize. Jesus even says it in the book of John. Apart from me, you, you, you are nothing. So Paul 
says he's a slave. He is nothing. Christ is everything. So the word Christos, that's where we get Christ, which is um, in Hebrew, Meshiach means Messiah. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. The word Christos in Greek actually, um, think of it this way. Um, we like to think that were Jesus to have a mailbox with his name, that it would say Christ on it as if it was his last name. It's not his last name. His last name is of Nazareth <laughs> or actually son of David or which you could, you know, smash that together. Davidson would be Jesus's actual last name. So the Davidsons would be the mailbox name, not Christ. So Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the office. So the Greek word carries all of these royal overtones. Um, and we should understand the word Christ. When we think of the word Christ, we should be thinking kingship, messiahship, um, in other words, king of Israel, and thus the world's rightful king. That's what we should be thinking when we see the word Jesus, the Christ. So Paul here acknowledges that he was called to be an apostle. He's a sent one. Apostolos in Greek just means a sent one. Who was consecrated, he was set apart for the purposes of the gospel of God, he says. So for, for Paul, the gospel is fundamental in several ways. It's fundamental to his own self-definition, who he is. The gospel appropriates for him who he really is in light of Christ, a slave with nothing to boast, nothing to bring to the table but his own sin and pity. Okay, But it also is his self-understanding and his purpose. So it appropriates who he is, who he, how he's supposed to think, and what he's supposed to do. That's what the gospel gives all of us. So in early Christianity, the gospel, the euangelion in Greek, was this royal proclamation about Jesus, denoting a message or an announcement that Jesus had been enthroned. Okay? The, the gospel is not Jesus died so I could go to heaven and not have any obligations here on earth. That is not the gospel. That is not it at all. It's the proclamation and announcement that Jesus has been enthroned. You see, in the Jewish world, this good news has its roots in the Old Testament. Um, and you may easily pass over texts like these, but on Isaiah 40, verse 9, um, and you should look at these later, by the way, if you're writing notes, Isaiah 40, verse 9, and Isaiah 52, verse 7. Two verses that you should definitely look to. But in the Jewish world, this gospel, this good news, described in Isaiah this messenger who would bring to Jerusalem this wonderful news that Babylon had been defeated, Israel is no longer in exile for all of her sins, and that Yahweh would return to Zion's hill to take up residence in the temple. So if you were to say, well, what was the gospel in the minds of Peter or Saul before he became Paul? It was just his Roman name anyway. What, was, what would their paradigm for the gospel pre-understanding Christ, that was it. Babylon's defeated. We're no longer in exile. And Yahweh is going to come back to the temple. Ezekiel saw him leave. He's going to come back and take up residence with God's people where he belongs. So that's, that's the Jewish side of the equation. The pagan side of the equation, in other words, the Roman world of the first century, 
speaks of the time when the euangelion, the announcement, went forth, which was usually an announcement of the birth of a new political leader, or not just a birth, but even this enthronement or accession of an emperor. So when, when Nero would have been um, taken to the throne, a gospel would have went out. A message would have went out. A royal proclamation would have went out. Nero is now the emperor of the greatest nation on earth at the time. As, you know, <laughs> it, it was um, keep Rome great. That was his, uh, make Rome great again. That was his um, tagline, I'm sure. It's somewhere in the annals of history. At any rate, <laughs> so already, already in verse 1, Paul has taken off the gloves. The gloves are off. We're using fists now. The gospel lays claim to the entire world. That's his message. In verse 2, look with me. In verse 2, Paul situates this message of the kingdom deep within the promises of God found in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets had taught the gospel. Indeed, we know from Galatians 3.8 that Abraham had the gospel preached to him by the Scriptures as the Gentiles were going to be justified by faith as well, just like Abraham. We could call this a pre-gospel in a sense. Um, in that it was the, the gospel in principle, but it wasn't entirely understood until the coming of Christ himself. I don't think Ab Abraham knew the gospel in the way we know it, but he was anticipating the gospel. The promise had been made about being justified by faith and that Abraham's covenant, God's covenant with Abraham was going to bless the world. At any rate... Um, as Paul will explain throughout the book, there is this massive continuity between God's plans in the Old Testament. There's a continuity between the Old Testament and its relationship to the New Testament or the New Covenant. So we'll explore that as we go. But here already, Paul says in verse 2, look, I'm not saying anything new. Read your Bibles. It's all there. Verse 3. The Apostle Paul here explains that the concern with the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand, now appertains to a person, namely King Jesus the Lord, who comes from the line of David. So <clears throat> he talks about the um, uh, born of the seed of David, and then he goes into being declared the Son of God with power um, according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So he's talk it's, it's funny. He talks about David... And then he brings up the resurrection. What is he doing? Well, he's not describing the human and divine natures of the one person, Jesus. Okay? Um, Jesus does not have two natures, or excuse me, two persons. He's not two persons. He's one person with two natures. Uh, he explains rather instead the earthly state of Jesus and this Jesus being the great, 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 great grandson of, of David. And... He contrasts it with the risen and exalted Christ. So here's humble Jesus. He comes, he's born of the virgin, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, is risen from the dead, and he compares the two. He's David's son. He's a Davidson. And he's raised. He's the Lord of glory. Those are the comparisons here. So he says in verse 4 that the divine sonship of God was established through the Holy Spirit's power in raising Christ from the dead. So, if you're reading your Bibles properly, there are essentially um, the Messiahship of Jesus is built on two things. 
One, he's from David. Okay, He's a real human being. Jesus was really born, had real human flesh and bones, ate food, went to the bathroom. He was a real man. A real man. He's from David's line. Two, his resurrection sent a message to the world that he was the Messiah and has always been such. So those are the, that's the Messiahship of Jesus built on those two premises right there. And for good reason, every single Jew in the first century knew that a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. A dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. Why do you think the disciples went and hid? It's over. He was supposed to do all the things, and he didn't. He died. He was obviously a failure from their perspective in that moment. See, the coming Messiah in the Jewish world, he, of course, had several tasks. And this, by the way, is not really that controversial. If you were a Jew in the first century at the temple listening to 12-year-old Jesus talk about his father, here's what you would be thinking, okay? One, I'm in the temple, and it's not the way it should be. Herod's building it. It's not done. The glory of Yahweh is not back. So I know the Messiah is going to come. He's going to rebuild the temple the right way. He's going to cleanse the temple, as it were. Two, uh, Rome's here, <laughs> occupying our land. So I know the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to defeat all the pagans, in this case, Rome. Three, rescue Israel. <laughs> We're going to be rescued. And four, he's going to bring God's justice to the world. However, imagine being a first century Jew listening to Jesus teaching. No wonder everybody was mad at him all the time. Think about this. He spent time saying weird things about his body being the temple. What? The first century temple is supposed to be rebuilt, and this man is saying that his body is the actual temple, and if we destroy it, he'll raise it up in three days. What is he talking about? This is weird. Two, Jesus most definitely did not defeat Rome in their timetable. In fact, Rome had clearly defeated Jesus by killing him. Three, Israel was thus not actually rescued. And four, justice to the world wasn't apparently brought because Jesus was in a tomb. So now, think, think like Paul as best you can. 2,000 years later, think like Paul. What does the resurrection now do? See, Paul's point is that the resurrection is what marked Jesus out as the Son of God. It reversed the verdict of Rome and the Jewish leaders. It established him as Israel's true Messiah and thus the world's rightful king. So Rome could only give death. That was their only weapon. The state can only coerce you. They can't bless you, and they're certainly not trying with tax easement. <laughs> Just one thing we could think of. But, so that was their only weapon, was coercion and death. But Jesus had broken that weapon, had taken it completely out of their hands, and smashed it on the ground because he was raised from the dead. So Paul, he didn't, Paul didn't have to fit Jesus into these Old Testament paradigms and motifs. The paradigms and the motifs from the Old Testament had to be understood now in light of Jesus. That's what the New Testament is. It didn't make sense to Saul until Jesus knocked him off his high horse and said, well, actually, here's the truth. 
And Paul then says, ah, that's what the Old Testament means. Jesus is the key to unlock the door to all these truths. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see that these gospel truths give grace and apostleship, or probably the better Greek translation is the grace of apostleship meaning that the gospel propels us out into the world for a specific reason. He says right here in the text, the obedience of faith among all nations. So the gospel is the message of Christ being established um, as Israel's Messiah. Christ is established as the Messiah, and thus he's the world's Lord. And the Roman Christians needed to know it because the world needs to know it. That's what Paul is saying. You need to know this gospel truth. Not so you can puff yourself up, because you can declare it to the rest of the world. The word, um, interestingly enough, I was uh, doing a little more word study on this. The word there, obedience, is actually a compound form, including the verb um, akuo, which means to hear. And so I think what Paul is making a connection, and he makes it elsewhere, but this idea of the Shema, the daily Jewish prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh is one, you shall love Yahweh your God, etc., etc. So this obedience of the faith among all the nations is a call for people everywhere to hear. You know, how can they respond unless someone's sent? That sort of thing he gets into Romans 10. They need to hear and they need to respond to this newfound community built on the wonders and the grace of our Jesus, Jesus the Lord. So, here's the thing, like, and I don't know why this isn't self-evident, but the world, Paul says, the world is now a different place because of what God has done in Christ Jesus, Israel's true king, the world's true Lord. It's just different now, and it's meant to be different. The gospel is this imperial summons to abandon all of your false loyalties, all of the things that enslave us and ensnare us, and instead obey Christ, grace through faith. So all other worldviews are irrelevant. I don't don't care what the Buddhists think. I don't care what the Hindus think. I don't care what Islam teaches. All of those other worldviews have no hope found within them anywhere. Why? Because Christ is raised from the dead. The world is different now, and now Christ must be obeyed. And so Paul tells the Romans in verse 6, they are called by Christ. They are the beloved of God. They are called to be saints in verse 7. And then grace and peace comes via the Spirit from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the entire, the letter's entire paradigm is now established. The gospel grants us peace with God through the grace of God. So what do we do with a text like this? The gloves are coming off this morning. The King Jesus Gospel has no doubt fallen on hard times these days, and this is because many ostensible Christians fail to see the bigness of the Gospel. It has essentially been vilipended by many evangelicals. In other words, it's treated as though it just has this little value or worth in the here and now. Oh, that's right, the Gospel. I forgot about that. As if it's not the central thing. See, when the gospel is treated as extraneous or or having no real meaning, it's just at the fringes, there's no real meaning for day-to-day life, the church essentially loses her witness in the world, which is why Paul does what he does here in the first part of this chapter. Now, we did some traveling the past couple weeks, and I'm done. 
But I will say this. Uh, picture with me a rest stop, okay? You've been to rest stops, the non-shady ones. And uh, I like to have my 45 caliber next to my hip when I go to those places. But picture a rest stop. You are walking into the building to use the facilities. After all, you are at rest. And you've traveled all day, and you stumble upon the map on the wall. You've all seen it, I'm sure. The wall that says you are here. And then you breathe a sigh of relief because, well, it's either a sigh of relief or a sigh of further consternation because you're either closer than you thought or further away. That's irrelevant. But you are here. This is the introduction to Romans. Paul, Paul essentially says here, here's who I am. Hello, nice to meet you. This is King Jesus who brought the Old Testament rushing forward into himself. And in his resurrection, he brings the future glory all the way up to the present. And here you are, friends. Nice to meet you, by the way. Called to serve the living God, to serve this newly crowned king. That's his greeting. That's what he says. See, in a manner of speaking, the Apostle Paul tells the Jewish and Gentile Christians that the most important thing about any of this is Christ in him crucified and raised. That is the foundation. Now, he will get to the hard stuff, the nitty-gritty about doctrinal concerns, the deep stuff about uh, justification or covenant theology and the analogy of the clay, shall what is molded say to the potter, why have you made me like this? And there's some deep, 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 deep stuff there in Romans 9. But for now, writing to this church, he frames the discussion, grounding them in no uncertain terms on the King Jesus gospel. And it's much bigger than what you just read. You read this and you think, oh, that's, that's cute, that's nice. That's sentimental. Sounds great, Paul. Nice to meet you. No, 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 no. The gloves are off. This King Jesus gospel is a massive thing. And it's unfortunate that the gospel has been reduced down to going to heaven when you die. Paul doesn't even mention it here. And he really has nothing to say about heaven um, in the book of Romans. Not much at all. Um, and I think that's interesting. <laughs> Instead of truncating the good news, the gospel is presented here as something exciting, something dramatic that has happened in history. This world-changing message that something is now different. And this announcement regarding Jesus the Lord, it changes individuals, it changes whole societies and nations, and as he explains in chapter 8, it changes the universe. Because the creation groans for redemption. People groan for redemption. They may not know it, but they're groaning for it. See, this good news is about what God has done in Christ, what God has done in Jesus, who is the Messiah, Israel's true and promised king, and thus, because he's Israel's true and promised king, he's the world's rightful Lord. And so what we must do is recapture the posture of Paul. What do I mean? Well, how does Paul see himself? How does he view himself in light of Christ? It doesn't go around. He's the same guy who said, by the way, you have nothing to boast in. My boast is Christ. So how does he view himself? Well, he says as a slave, completely destitute. As slaves in the Roman world, had no, you could not own property. They had no rights whatsoever. Nothing. And the Roman view of women wasn't any better because they were 
slightly ahead of the slaves. And he sees himself as, as, as having nothing. Why? Because of what he gets for, all this, for the sake of what he gets in Christ. See, far too much of Christianity these days is experienced from the cheap seats. The tickets are cheap. The view is good enough. And it doesn't really demand a whole lot anyway. People attend church. They get a feel-good pep talk. Not much scripture. Chris has an experience to share later, but I'm sure. <laughs> he already did. But they get excited for about an hour with flashy lights and smoke machines, but it doesn't demand anything from you. But how does Paul here in the first few verses view the gospel? For Paul, the gospel is all-encompassing. It's all of, an all-of-life demand to forego any temptation for comfort and ease. Abandon all your idols and instead follow the resurrected King Jesus into the world as he takes possession of the nations. The obedience of faith among all the nations. That's the goal. See, the, the King Jesus gospel isn't a suggestion. It's not one option among many or this decent sounding proposal so long as things go our way. The gospel of the kingdom that Christ established 2,000 years ago is an entire political, because Jesus is Lord, and economic, in other words, you shall not steal, ordering of life that infiltrates and expands throughout the entire world in the self-sacrificial, Holy Spirit-empowered missionary activity of the church. This kingdom is comprehensive, and the reason it has to be comprehensive is because sin is comprehensive. Okay, like, I don't know why this is so difficult when we say, no, you may not mandatory vaccine me. Why is it so hard to see that as a gospel issue? Why is it so hard to see the things that we see unfold around us as being a gospel issue? If we have a true in proper view of the kingdom being all-encompassing based on the fact that sin is all-encompassing, it's really simple. <laughs> it's not hard. It's the all-encompassing authority of heaven taking full responsibility for sin, because Jesus is our substitute, amen, in order to reclaim men, women, and children for the kingdom purpose of loving, serving, and obeying God in every single area of life so that the nations can experience true and proper healing. It's very simple. This is precisely the opening message of Romans. Paul says all of that right there. So what you must know, you must know who Christ is so that you can know who you are. Okay? You have no self-knowledge. This is back to what Calvin's point was in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. You don't really have true knowledge of self unless you have true knowledge of God. And to some degree, once you have some true knowledge of self, a.k.a. I'm a deeply depraved sinner in need of grace, then, oh, who's sufficient to fix that? Jesus Christ. So Christ is king, and you folks are his newly acquired possession. We are slaves to Christ Jesus. We abandon our idols and we live a life in constant pursuit of Him and His glory. That's what it's all about each day, every single day. So children, you, I'm talking to you now. This, well, I've been talking to you, by the way, in case you didn't know. But like, this is the King Jesus gospel that you have to know. You are being taught something that 
I would argue probably most of the parents in this room weren't taught until later on in life. You need to know this gospel. When someone says, what is the gospel? Your response should be the message that Christ is king. Okay, so what's the gospel? Okay, thank you. Beat that into your head. Got it? That's your job this afternoon while you're swimming. <laughs> so one final thought. Paul's opener here is rather aggressive. Okay? It may not seem aggressive because we're just nice. We're nice people. But it's aggressive. And it's aggressive if only we will think about it in the proper historical categories that we ought. See, claiming that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and thus the world's rightful king is a very bold claim. The reason it is bold is because the claim inherently challenges the powers that be. It's inherent to it. So as one author put it, Caesar's messengers didn't go around the world saying, Caesar is Lord, so if you feel you need to have a Roman Empire kind of experience, you might want to submit to him. See, the challenge of Paul's gospel is that someone very different from Caesar exercising a very different kind of power is the world's true Lord. So in other words, we don't, we don't play the power tactics that the world plays, but that doesn't mean we don't have any tactics at all, nor does it mean we don't have any power at all either. It simply means that we play the game with a different set of rules. Caesar, who was called Lord, who was called a son of God, desires to subjugate and conquer. That's what we call statism, hence the state is not God shirt that I decided to sport today. Caesar, who was called Lord and a son of God, desires to subjugate and conquer, but only with force and coercion. That's all they have. That's statism. That's the nonsense we're living in right now. But in contrast, Jesus, who is Lord and the Son of the living God, desires to conquer and bless through servanthood dominion. This is freedom, and it is precisely the thing that many don't have right now. Which means, to wrap this all up, we need to be resolute in two ways. Okay, so think about how you can be resolute in these ways. One, we need to see to it that we don't truncate the gospel. And parents, do not let your children do the same thing. Don't let them have a small view of the King Jesus gospel. Be resolute in that. Two, see to it that we're preaching the fullness of the gospel, which demands and requires that we press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. That's why we say all of Christ for all of life. So Paul pulls no punches and goes straight after the powers and principalities, which means that our approach should be no different. No different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy, the thrice holy God. And we approach you with both a hesitancy, because we know that we're not, holy, but yet a confidence because we know in Christ we are declared to be holy. And we come to you as your children, you being Abba, Father. We come to you as your children asking for blessing. God, would you give us repentance first? But the blessing to be, to be bold in this King Jesus Gospel? Um, may we be resolute. May we see the uncompromising nature of what it is this message truly is. And Father, as so many 
so many of our brothers and sisters have acquiesced to the state's demand. God, I just pray for a massive outpouring of repentance and revival and reformation. Um, we need it, and we know, we know the only way that's going to happen is if we are the first in line to repent. So may you strengthen cross and crown. May we be humble enough to acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our frailties, acknowledge our insecurities, acknowledge our pride that gets in the way. May we be humble enough to do that so that we can try and in turn be equipped, forgiven, bold, courageous. We want to serve this King Jesus gospel and we know that we need to be right with you. So help us, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.